of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 288. Uh, Jason Lingren is with me, and I won't say this is a pseudonym, but we're using a partial name. It'll become evident why as we get in. Uh, Jessica is joining us. We're going to go over, I suppose a lot of this is available online, but we're going to get an insider's account of what role insurance companies now play in our health care. Uh, at the outset here, I mean, when we met, I was already of the opinion that doctors really don't so-called practice medicine anymore. Uh, they're not in control. They're completely under the thumb, as are most of us, of insurance companies. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good afternoon. All right. We're a little bit ahead, so I'm guessing we don't have anything to add in. No, not right now. We don't. All right. Let's do this. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, gentlemen. Welcome. How are you? Good. Glad to have you here. What I'll do is I'll, I'm going to run through the uh, the previous history kind of ideas so people can get an idea. If you want to expound on it, you can, but I'm kind of pushing forward to get into the meat and potatoes here. So Jessica worked as a military nurse and a patient advocate. She has over 15 years in uh, healthcare, hospital, rehab, home care, and in the insurance and community. Uh, she came to a point in her life where she had a conflict of consciousness in what she was doing for a living. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about. Anyhow, um, anything you'd like to add to that, Jessica? Yeah, Crow, the, the one thing I would clarify, I wasn't actually a nurse in the military. Um, I, I joined the military, served my time, basically used the GI Bill to go to nursing school. So I had a different role while I was enlisted in the military. Okay, perfect. Um, so we're going to jump in on insurance ideas. And uh, you have provided us a bullet point document to follow through. So I'll let you jump in right there at the top. All right. I appreciate you giving me the chance to, to chat about this. Um, so I've been in healthcare for basically 15 years. Like you said, I've, I've worked in all different aspects. I started my career in a basal surgical setting. You know, Early on, I was excited to be doing what I was doing, but pretty quickly I understood that there were a lot of things that conflicted with me You know, personally. I had post-op open-heart patients and the doctors were telling them, hey, you know, Stop by McDonald's on your way out and, and pick up a Big Mac because you need that protein. After a period of time working in adult medicine, I, I went over to pediatrics because um, I figured kids, you know, they were resilient and I enjoyed being around kids. The, um, parents, unfortunately, were the harder uh, folks to deal with. But, you know, when your kid's sick, you want to do everything you can um, to make them better. So when a doctor said, hey, you know, let's do another CAT scan because the first one wasn't conclusive. And they started doing multiple CAT scans on kids, you know, and in short periods of time, it kind of got the wheels turned into my head, like something just just doesn't feel right here. And so eventually I, I kind of burned out in pediatrics and I left the bedside altogether. Roughly 10 years ago or so, I started in the insurance industry, uh, working Monday through Friday, you know, nine to five. It was, it was good. It was very comfortable. I eventually moved into a position called value-based care. And that was a setting where I knew... I saw the role of how the insurance company impacted the, the doctors. Um, but I think what specifically you mentioned, the conflict of, of consciousness, what happened for me, I had been working in this value-based care, understanding that doctors have certain boxes to tick. And some of those boxes have to do with vaccines and mammograms and colonoscopies and all those sorts of things. I had been out there coaching doctors regarding vaccines specifically. And there was one day, you know, as, as I mentioned, I had that kind of conflict of, of consciousness Something had happened to a, a friend of mine um, that really shook me. 
she she had a, a loss that was pretty significant and it in some ways it related to what I was doing um, in my work. And basically I, I, I realized right then and there, like I looked at the big picture. I looked at how I, I medicine wasn't really lining up with everything that I believed in myself. And I started looking at a little deeper into the stuff going on with the insurance industry. And I knew that I had to start planning my exit strategy. I ended up going to a certification for patient advocacy and, and I've kind of gone down that road um, ever since. So I've, I left the insurance industry altogether and um, have moved in a, a direction of patient advocacy. Jessica, people should know that in my lifetime, I'm in my 50s now, when I was young, doctors made the decisions. Uh, when medicine became privatized, roughly in the 70s, uh, I think Kaiser Permanente was the first big run at privatization of medicine that has led to where we are now. Um, we've come to a point where, you know, even, even what you're pointing out, value-based medicine, well, the value is not for you, right? It's really, truly about value, monetary value. But do you want to jump in with a brief history of medicine and cover the Flexner report? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the big change kind of in, in healthcare started with the Flexner report and Abraham Flexner, I think he probably deserves a show unto himself. But he was born, and, and I don't know if there's anything to this, but November 13th, 1866, Kentucky, the Jewish immigrant parents. He went to John Hopkins, and he, he studied education of all things. He ended up starting his own school back in Kentucky. His wife, Anne Crawford, she wrote the Broadway play, Mrs. Wiggs and the Cabbage Patch. I'm sure I played with Cabbage Patch Kids when I was a kid. But anyway, because of her success, she allowed um, Flexner to go to, he eventually studied at Harvard and he went to the University of Berlin. And it, I'm kind of giving you all this history because it's really hard to believe how blessed this family was. Flexner's daughter, Eleanor, she was a, a left-wing activist and writer. And she, she wrote the book, Century of Struggle. She was a member of the Communist Party and somehow with no real historical training, she ends up writing this, this book that becomes the cornerstone of, of women's suffrage and the women's liberation movement. Uh, Flexner, he had two brothers, Simon and Bernard. Uh, Simon was the director of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research for 34 years. And uh, his brother Bernard was a New York attorney and one of the original members of the Council on Foreign Relations. So <laughs> somehow this family is just this magically blessed, I would imagine, group of people. But Maybe, maybe their blood wasn't red. Maybe their blood was blue or something, but go <laughs> ahead something perhaps. But anyway, um, in 1908, he wrote uh, The American College, a criticism based on all of his experience, you know, traveling abroad and seeing how other educational systems works. He, he writes this critique. Um, and Henry Pritchett, who was the president uh, of the Carnegie Foundation for Advancement of Teaching at the time, he noticed this, this writing of, of Flexner's and he asked Flexner to write a report um, for the Carnegie Foundation on the, the status of the, the nation's medical schools. So, you know, Flexner took a couple of years, he wrote this report. It was a brutal assessment of, you know, the, the medical schools at the time and doctors and schools even threatened to sue him for libel. But basically this made like front page headlines, you know, in the newspapers and everyone was celebrating, you know, they, they were about to reform all these medical schools and Flexner was getting all the uh, attention for it. So. Basically, the Flexner Report, to sum it up, they recommended reducing the number of medical schools. At the time, there was 155. Um, so reduce the number of medical schools, reduce the number of poorly trained physicians, um, increase the prerequisites that doctors needed to enter medical training, 
um, train physicians to practice in a scientific manner, um, give medical schools control of the clinical instruction over hospitals, and also to strengthen the state regulations um, for medical licensure. So they were very critical, saying that, you know, basically we needed to overhaul medicine altogether. And a lot of physicians pushed back and they, they actually said they were turning you know, carrying doctors into neutered technicians. So basically, it, this drastically reduced the number of physicians sending demand, you know, and prices essentially skyrocketing. Of course, the American Medical Association became the only body that was now authorized to grant licenses to these medical schools. And they would only grant licenses to schools that were based in pharmacology. So they essentially gutted the practice of natural medicine and homeopathy. Um, which at the time, you know, makes perfect sense if you're considering the relationship between, you know, we've got the Carnegie Foundation, Carnegie and Rockefeller are, are good buds. Rockefeller has Standard Oil and Standard Oil is dealing with IG Farben. So basically Standard Oil was supplying IG Farben, who was essentially funding the Nazis. And it, it was a great way for Rockefeller to get his investment back based on, you know, the, the push to sell pharmaceuticals through these newly created medical schools because the Flexner report overhauled everything. In other words, you're outlining basically what we could call a coup d'etat of the medical industry early in the 1900s, basically. Exactly. Yep. You know, and then of course, IG Farben turns into Bayer and BASF and Monsanto. And, and of course, the Rockefellers funded the WHO. And now they're in control of it all today. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the Flexner re report came out in 1910, what we're at 111 years later, and now we've we're in the midst of a pandemic and, and only a pharmaceutical product will, will save us all. But it, I'd be remiss if I didn't add that after the Flexner report, Abraham Flexner went on to head the Board of Education for the Rockefeller Foundation. And then in 1929, he was approached by the Bamberger family um, of Macy's and he was offered an endowment to start his own institute, and which he did. And it was the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. And that entity is probably most notable for bringing Einstein over to America. Fraud after fraud after fraud. People who aren't aware should understand what an endowment is. That's a serious gesture to get an endowment. It's one thing to be given money to set a thing up, but the idea behind an endowment is you've been given so much money that you can basically live off the interest. So it goes on ad infinitum, if I'm not mistaken here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some really remarkable people had have passed through the halls of his, uh, Institute for Advanced Study. I, I just couldn't get over when I was, you know, really digging into the stuff, how gifted a life this man led, if he actually even existed for who he was, but very interesting. But that kind of sets the groundwork for the next thing that I, I made a point there, kind of the, the patriarchy, the, you know, the religion of, of medicine and doctors, you know, Flexner managed to basically shut down half of the country's medical schools. We ended up after the Flexner report, we ended up with just 66 medical schools. And they, of course, were mostly male-dominated white institutions. So we, now we're wiping out the diversity of homeopaths, you know, Native Americans, African Americans, midwives, basically ended that kind of entire homeopathic push, natural push. Back then, most of the child, all the childbirths were done at home. By the 1940s, over half of them were being done in hospitals. So in a very short amount of time, things really, really changed from a, a medical point. So basically, the, the doctor-patient relationship kind of molded into this, this patriarchy where the doctor is the one with all the information and the skills. They've gone to these prestigious universities at this point. And then the idea of doctors as gods goes all the way back to Greek times. When I refer to medicine kind of as a religion in a sense, I mean it in more ways than one. You know, 
even to this day, doctors are treated like gods, especially in like my parents' generation. They, they would never dare go against what a doctor might have to say. And I, I think it can be seen in the sense of like a, a white coat syndrome. If you've heard of white coat syndrome, it's a, it's a psychosomatic presentation of, of fear of authority. A doctor walks in and your blood pressure goes through the roof. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's any better example of an authority figure there, but so now here we are trying to get you know, patients to, to challenge a diagnosis and it, it just doesn't happen. What you've explained here is a typical method that precedes social engineering. We've covered it a lot of times called homogenization. So when you start talking about going from hundreds of schools down to 66, there's your removal of variety. And this is how it's done every time. You can notice this right now in the colors of the cars on the road and how different any car looks from any manufacturer in any given class car. These are all the symptoms of exactly what you're pointing out. You're just pointing it out early in the 1900s, but it shows that the song remains the same to make a pun. Uh, the homogenization or the reduction of variety always precedes these coup d'etats, no matter what level they come at us. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. There's also an end aspect to this. Back in the day, doctors would spend, they'd have time, they'd have hours and hours to read, you know, medical journals and things, and, and they'd be able to stay abreast of, of new information. But nowadays it's barely enough for doctors to get to see the 10 patients or so, the 10 minutes that they have to see patients. It's a total lack of caring. It's a total separation of doing what you know to be correct and doing what you are directed to do or the policy of the corporation you're working for. Um, we see it right now. We, we have a local dentist here that has one of the people who works in there desperately needs dental work but is not insured, actually employed at a dentist and can't get the dental work done. This is where we've come, but um, I think we're at the threshold here. We need to start talking about insurance companies. Um, before all this happened, did we have medical insurance per se? No, you know, we, we didn't. Um, it was, it, you can almost divide it into two aspects, kind of before the Flexner report and after. Like before Flexner, you know, people didn't go to the hospital for survivable things, you know, it, or even wellness-related things. Maybe they spent five bucks a year on on what would be considered healthcare. But the Flexner report was turning hospitals into a business. So businesses have products to sell. Um, actually, in, in 1926, the agenda of the American Medical Association, literally the agenda was how to increase demand for physicians. Their goal in that meeting was to create a market. So the, the committee formed, the American Medical Association formed a committee to address that very topic. Um, and they happened to find a guy in Dallas, Texas. Um, big surprise. He was an educator as well. Um, his name was Justin Ford Kimball. And he was the, the superintendent for the Dallas Independent School District. And while he was working for the school district, he had created a sick fund for teachers. Eventually, further down in his career, he took over at Baylor University Hospital. Um, and he had this idea, you know, because he knew how much time teachers were taking off due to illness. Um, and he knew how much they were spending for their health care. He also knew that they were spending money routinely on makeup and, and things to make themselves pretty. So he said, you know what, it's not going to be difficult to convince them to pay routinely for health care if he's got all this data and he understands how their sickness is affecting their, their work life and such. So his dealings with the AMA and that was back when um, Blue Cross was born. At, at that point, it was a nonprofit entity, basically identifying a steady stream of income in order to keep hospitals afloat um, and to pay pay the bills when the members got sick. So as the coup d'etat happened, uh, the idea of insurance starts coming on board, but I'm guessing, and this is just a guess, 
they don't come into their own until the privatization, until basically Kaiser Permanente. I think it's under Richard Nixon, if I'm not mistaken. I've forgotten, I'm, I'm guessing there, but I think it's under Richard Nixon in a roughly 72, 73, medicine gets privatized, same time that we're pulling the fiat currency for good off any kind of a gold standard. Um, this must be when insurance companies come into their own. So from, from the point of the Flexner report, this is when the idea of insurance comes in and they first implement it for like sick time off, this kind of idea. Yeah, basically, you know, so roughly like the 1940s, maybe 9% of Americans had health insurance at that point. 1943, there was the IRS passed a rule um, that employer-based health care, you know, should be tax-free. Um, and then in 1948 is when the Blue Shield um, aspect came into the picture. So originally it was Blue Cross that was basically based in hospitals. And then we've got Blue Shield that's dealing with the doctors because the doctors were kind of left out of the mix. You know, the AMA didn't necessarily want to go the route of governmental, you know, healthcare. They wanted the doctors to stay independent, but they didn't want the doctors to organize outside of the AMA. So that's when they kind of set up this, you know, the blue shield aspect. By 1953, 63% of people had health insurance. Between the 60s and the 70s, the cost of care basically doubled as far as insurance. And at this point, employers started looking for opportunities because it was just getting way too expensive for them to deal with insurance companies. So they, they went down this role of, of self-insured. So now I'm an employee, I'm going to make this fund to basically self-insure my employees, but we're going to still use the structure of the insurance company um, as an administrator and you know a bargaining unit, so to speak. So 1966, that's when Medicare finally came on the scene. Um, but at this point, the private industry had kind of already built the structure of insurance. So when the government came into the ring, they basically had to follow the structure of what the private industry had already built. So that's why Medicare came in with a very private corporate structure. Um, and initially, hospitals sent the bills to the government and the government paid it. But with the massive increase in the elderly, with you know the Medicare population coming in, they were soon overwhelmed. I think in 1983, um, Medicare switched from a kind of just pay as you go to more of a prospective payment model where they fixed the prices for hospital care. Um, they, the private side kind of went down the HMO route. Medicare um, dealt with this more prospective payment model. And we ended up with these big, huge networks, doctor and hospital demand, you know, reimbursement was dropping. Sorry to interrupt, Jessica, but so basically what's going on here is we get to a point we're post-World War II and private industry has come in with a so-called insurance company. But then around 66, uh, governmental controlled insurance comes on board. But what's the difference there? On the one hand, you have the idea that somewhere a corporation made this thing. I mean, we all know who's controlling it, right? We all know who queued it up. We all know who did the coup d'etat. You said the same old names that always get said um, and even mentioned some commissions. It's the same all the way through our history verbatim, um, almost any topic you look at, but presumably those were supposed to be private corporations in 66. Uh, that's government coming in as insurance. So who holds the control over what's being done in the hospitals and for patients? Is that private governance or is that government oversight governance? So there's essentially, you know, two sides to kind of healthcare these days. We've got the Medicare, Medicaid side of things, and then we've got the private industry. But because the private industry had grown up before the government side of things came into play, the, the government side had to conform to what the private industry, that, that private corporate structure. 
we've got Medicare on the government side, and then we've got kind of health maintenance organizations or HMOs on the private side, except the HMOs could be kind of selective about who was in their network, you know, and who, what patients could receive benefits. So this kind of cherry picking things started that pretty much all backfired when costs went through the roof. The HMOs had to open up their networks. So now these networks are getting much larger and now the ball is kind of back in the insurance company's court. If a hospital or a doctor demanded higher reimbursement, they could just be dropped from the network because there was another doctor or hospital to to fill their shoes. So in order to recoup the charges, the doctors and hospitals had to increase their prices and insurance companies' premiums. And it's basically just a a vicious cycle. And at this point now, the the private sector is administering some portion of the government aspect of healthcare. So you've got something called Medicare Advantage that is a, a government-funded program, but it's administered through uh, private insurance companies. Do we know where the insurance things, like how did the corporations really start getting their hands into medicine? Was it maybe like the 20s kind of a thing when the Rockefeller medicine thing started taking over first with the universities and then they started corporatizing everything and making things exceedingly more expensive by charging for every little thing and 10 times more than it should have been? Right. So so initially it was a kind of a, a fee-for-service sort of scenario where a doctor did an MRI, he got reimbursed for doing that MRI. It was it was a very one-for-one type of scenario, but not until kind of Medicare came on the scenes and then the cost really started going through the roof did they realize they needed some kind of, of cost containment. And that's when a lot of these government-based programs started coming down the road, these things like value-based care and Medicare stars and a lot of these different programs as far as cost containment goes. If we back up a little bit here to, to kind of HIPAA, HIPAA is a, something that I think a lot of people, they see HIPAA as, oh, it's my privacy law. It's the thing that keeps me private. It doesn't protect medical privacy. Um, it, it actually eliminates you know, patient consent for requirements um, as far as data sharing goes. You know, when, when you sign a, a HIPAA privacy notice, you're basically saying that that entity can share your information with upwards of, of 2 million different vendors or what, what they call covered entities. Even now and in times of pandemic, they can share it with even more people. So it's definitely a misnomer. You know, people feel like they sign HIPAA and they're, they're protecting their information, but that's definitely not the case. So HIPAA comes on the scene it basically allows the sharing of all of this medical information. That kind of tees up the, the move towards what's called meaningful use. Meaningful use is basically the establishment of EHRs. So when meaningful use came into play, that was 2009 um, through the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Um, that refers to the use of the electronic health records, essentially forcing doctors to adopt the electronic health record. So HIPAA allows them to share all the data. The meaningful use enforces or forces them to get this electronic health record. And now we've got a a way to capture all this data. And then we get to see where the money goes and and the patient populations and that sort of thing. So that's when a lot of these value-based care and, and different types of cost containment structures come into place. So let me jump in on the HIPAA. I was making online tools before the internet was really even household in a lot of places. And back then what was going on is we used to, we built websites and other things for medical establishments of one kind or another. At that time, those doctors had to hold uh, warehouses or a secure area with all the files, paper, folder, hard copy files for some number of years. It was either seven or 10. I don't remember. And they were scared to death 
to do the switch over to digital. Everyone was starting to get websites and online stuff, and they already had computers in their offices, but they were scared to death they were going to violate HIPAA. So one of the effects of HIPAA was on the one side, you didn't realize that you were signing over your rights because you thought it was protecting your rights. What it was doing is constraining doctors and the people who held your records. But up until, I don't know, close to 2000, people were scared to death of violating HIPAA. But here's the irony. When Jason and I covered the first kind of AI takeover and the first books, meaningful books written on AI, it was stated outright and claimed in the book that Google came in because it could and took hundreds of thousands of medical records to use to teach AI uh, in total violation of HIPAA. And they pointed out that it didn't matter. So, I mean, I guess I would put this to you, Jessica. It almost seems to me now with the reverse view that I have that HIPAA was all about constraining and putting the onus on doctors with records while they were accessing them wholesale, doing damn near whatever they wanted with them and pushing to get it all digitized so they could get easy access. Yes. Yeah, I I would agree. And and if you, if you look into, you know, that actually the wording of HIPAA, it, it talks about these, these covered entities. So basically, you know, in order to have this, in order to have a electronic health record work the way it's supposed to work, which is supposed to, you know, make the ease of, of ordering medications and, and consulting with physicians and transferring even a patient portal, all of that requires data. The EHR is supposed to communicate with the lab. It's supposed to communicate with the pharmacy. So in order to have all these things function optimally, which was the idea, you know, behind health records, electronic health records, all these different things had to communicate. So they all needed to have a certain level of clearance, so to speak, to to be able to access that personal health information. So the moment your doctor starts typing into his EHR, you can pretty much guarantee that that information is going to first, you know, a a billing company, a clearinghouse of some sort. You know, it, it could be going to a pharmacy. It could be going to all these different vendors that have some stake in the game, so to speak, that they may have a, a valid reason to have your information. but nine times out of 10, there's actually companies that, that purchase that medical information. It's anonymized what they call, you know, they take the, the, the patient identifiers away, but in today's world, it, it's very easy to kind of put those pieces back together. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the whole initial launching of HIPAA uh, was to convince people that, oh, we do all this stuff to keep your record safe and Doctors have to hold those hard copies, even if you're no longer a patient, for years and years. And HIPAA's there to protect you. When we were making websites, we had to constantly look up HIPAA regulations if we were building something for a dentist or a doctor or other otherwise. But you know, now that I'm down the occult road, you can see the tee up on everything you have laid down. And I, I wasn't really going to cross over, but I'll just lay down a couple things. The same players as did the 440 changeover. The same, I mean, Jason could go on and on and on about the list of players early in the 1900s that are doing the coup d'etat on basically free medicine or what I'll call free medicine. If you look at the word HIPAA, we now understand that every one of these words is loaded. Well, it basically says, hi, 7-Eleven, which is yeah. a 9-11 code. For that matter, if you take what's claimed to be an average temperature, which I never really thought about until they started saying, if you had 97, you had a temperature, which is complete nonsense because I can go run down my driveway three times and my temperature will be over 97, but 98.6 is a verbatim 911 encode. I mean, verbatim. 
Wow. It's, it's not hidden. It's not anything, which goes to show you that it's actually much deeper. What we're, we're hitting the surface narrative here, but the effects underneath would almost lead me to believe to say, was the average temperature of a person in the 1800s different than what it is now? Or is it just a lie? And none of us have bothered to check what an average temperature is. Um, the point is, is it's lock, stock, and barrel, no different than any of the systems that we talk about. But um, Jason, do you want to get anything here or do you want to keep pushing through? I'd like to touch on how government controls insurance companies and the fundings for programs. That sounds like something we should really get in here before we move forward. Yeah, definitely. So basically, when Medicare came on the scene and there's this huge explosion in in cost, they started to put all these ways to control costs. um, And one of those was based on the amount of data that they're getting through, you know, these electronic health records. So now we've we've got all this data. Um, We know that costs are exorbitant. So what can we put in place to basically get doctors to kind of conform to control costs? So they they start putting out a lot of different programs. I, I mentioned value-based programs a couple of times. So CMS, the Centers for Medicare, they put together quality requirements and those quality requirements each year, they change a little bit. So it, it may be, you know, everyone has to get a certain number of colonoscopies or, you know, mammograms, vaccines, those sort of things. So as a cost containment measure, all this stuff falls down to the doctors. And every time a, doc- a patient comes in the door, okay, you know, Mr. Smith, have you had your colonoscopy? Have you had your stress test? Have you had your blood pressure? And at this point now, in order to get either blessing of the, the government, either to continue with their government funding or to stay um, in that value-based program, they've got to make sure that they check all these boxes for every patient that walks in their door. So that this data has allowed us to really hone in on these areas where doctors may be spending too much, they may not be doing enough, they may be using the wrong network, so to speak, um, if, if they're not using the, the highest quality, lowest cost vendor. The insurance companies basically have control. They have all this data, they know what's going on, and they're able to control the doctor to say, okay, listen, doc, you know, you haven't done enough colonoscopies, you need to, to hit that number, you need to do more mammograms, so on and so forth. So it I have to definitely take a moment to say that doctors are are definitely part of the, the victims in all this because if they don't play by the rules, they can very easily get kicked out of either a, a program or a network. And at this point, the way we are so structured around health insurance, the health insurance is essentially the marketing for the doctor. If someone has insurance and they want to know what doctor to go see, they look in their insurance company's doctor hospital directory and they find a doctor. So if that doctor isn't in network with a particular insurance, they're really not going to get marketed to unless they do their own marketing. So the the risk of being kicked out of a a network because they're not either following the rules, they're not giving the vaccines on time, they're not doing the right amount of mammograms, there's definitely risk there. So doctors are are definitely at the mercy of, of insurance companies. Well, worse than you're even pointing out, because we're pointing out the the insurance on the patient side, but there's another side of this that gets the doctors stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's the idea of malpractice, right? And all the lawsuits that came. So now the doctor has to be insured, right? And so now he has to be careful about what the perception of anything he might do, whether it could lead to a lawsuit. But at the other side, those doctors are getting it on both sides, right? They're being directed how they can offer the care because of insurance, but they themselves have to qualify for insurance because of the also scary, you might get sued for malpractice or any number of things, right? 
Absolutely. Which lends back to, you know, when my days in pediatrics, you know, the, the statute of limitations on, on a child is, is 18 years. So they're going to jump through every hoop to make sure everything is okay with that kid. So, you know, that second CAT scan, that's like, you know, getting a hundred x-rays in, in one shot, they're going to do it because of that level of liability. I got to ask here because of what we're talking about liability. So right now, every one of us knows that if we go to the doctor and that we get a drug, that if we took the time to look up what the side effects for that drug are, that quite often the side effects can risk your life or certainly be much more severe than the thing they're supposed to be curing in the first place. This is commonplace, by the way. So I got to ask, how do they get out from under the liability of all these pharmaceuticals, which by the way, if people missed Jason's Rockefeller and oil episode, these pharmaceuticals, many of them are made from petroleum products, which is a byproduct or a side product or basically productized on the back of supposed making crude oil. My point would be is how the hell do they get out from under that? Because they're even saying on TV, um, you know, you got a rash, but you could die of kidney failure here. Uh, do you have any idea how all that works? Is it the idea that you've been told so somehow they're relieved? Or, you know, I have members of my family that were in their 80s with nasal problems. They were given a mist and they promptly permanently lost their sense of smell and taste. I'm just wondering, how the hell do they get exempt from being sued all the time uh, for things like this? You know, it, it, it's an interesting question. And I, I don't have exactly the answer, but I would imagine it has something to do with informed consent. You go to the pharmacy and you get your prescription and it's got the little paper attached with all the potential side effects and you've been informed. You know, if you continue to take the medicine knowing that these are the side effects, then then I would imagine that's... Little paper. <laughs> you yeah, ever yeah. fold one of those little papers? Which, it's like know, 10 it's feet long. And now that you're mentioning it, uh, of course... You have to give your signature and now all the pharmacies, you sign a waiver. Do you want to know uh, about drug interaction? You know, is there anything you want to know? Okay, sign here. So yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that. That whole thing's got to be tied to the loophole, doesn't it? I'm, I'm sure it does. And then I've been witness to what they would consider informed consent for major medical procedures, open heart surgeries and things. And the consent process, if it takes 10 minutes, that's probably a lot. And, and this is a, a, a major surgery. You know, it's, it's impossible for them to actually go through all the details. And it, it's, in my opinion, informed consent is probably one of my biggest soapboxes when it comes to especially everything that's going on right now. I can't imagine that people are getting full informed consent at drive-through vaccination. There's a whole other side to this too, as we've seen within the vaccine industry, they knew they were going to be damaging people. So they created a whole other court system so that if you tried to sue uh, because of a vaccine injury, uh, you were put into this like vaccine court system. So I'm wondering about that now too. I mean, could you, could you say I got injured and I finally came to my common sense reality that I had a skin condition and my kidney shut down. How can they call this medicine? I'm going to court. Do you have any idea whether there's some kind of indemnity between the, the, the makers of the drugs or are there special courts? I mean, are you aware of the vaccine courts? It's like if you get oh, injured by a vaccine, there's like this special place you go. There's there's actually um, there's two special places that you go. One of them um, is the, the vaccine injury compensation program. And then there's a, a second program called the countermeasure injury compensation program. So there's VICP and there's CICP. 
vaccine injury is for kind of the run of the mill everyday vaccines, the flu, the, you know, DTaP and all that other stuff. Countermeasure um, is a program specifically for what I would call the, the, the more risky vaccinations, things like the anthrax vaccine, smallpox, and believe it or not, COVID's in that as well. So the VICP has much more funding. There's actually a tax that comes out of every vaccine sold. Part of that tax, I believe it's 75 cents, goes into the VICP fund for compensation. You're allowed um, actually a, a, a trial. You know, it, it's essentially a, a judicial process um, to plead your case, expert witnesses, and all that sort of thing. Whereas CIPC, it's Crow, I know you were in the military as well. It, it's basically like you get a benefit. There, there's no arguing your case. There's no judge and jury. There's no witnesses. You have to prove that you were injured by this vaccine or this countermeasure beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then you're essentially entitled to benefits, which it, it may or may not cover your medical bills. It won't cover your legal fees. A complete subjugation of any idea of justice by, <laughs> I mean, how long has this been going on? It's one thing now where like everybody, nobody trusts authority or expects much of anything special from anywhere. But, you know, 15, 20 years ago, before 9-11 had really set in, uh, people still expected, was this kind of thing going on all the way back then? Do you know? You know, I, I don't know the origin of, of these different programs. Yeah, I wouldn't even venture to guess, but the CIPC thing, I've, I've dug into that pretty deeply because I'm, I'm really concerned about the informed consent going on with, with what's going on right now. And I, I dug so deep. From what I found, there's only actually 11 people working in that department. There are already 2,000 petitions behind um, starting 2021, and they, they currently don't have a director. So I, with all knowing, hearing about all the, uh, the people that are reporting adverse reactions to the current vaccine that's going around. I don't, I don't know how they're going to get through all those cases. Well, I'm, I'm not going to occultly take it apart. I just think it's a bit ironic that you're not a VIP, you're a VICP. If I took <laughs> some time to rip that apart, I probably could, but let's, let's just keep pushing. Yeah. So basically I, I kind of want to focus in on the area that I worked in, um, value-based care. Basically commercial insurers, they followed the lead of the government. They, they built their own value-based programs. You know, sorry to interrupt, but that on the surface, just the name of that. <laughs> who's, I what, think what Jason's what? about to say is, who's getting the value? What What the hell is this Walmart? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. It, and, and I mean, anyone can search it. You know, this this is stuff that, that's available online. Value-based care is, is a, a buzzword, you know, in the, the insurance industry. Um, and it, it's basically, it's a, a shift from that fee-for-service to what they call a value-based model. So basically, um, the doctors have to prove that they're, they're providing some type of value, um, which essentially meets, means, you know, meeting these quality measures. And then higher performance, you know, they receive a, a higher reimbursement. I went into that department thinking it was a good thing. I realized that it was a really big part of the problem. Pretty early on. Who's getting the value? Sorry to interrupt, but I got to ask from your point of view, where's the value? Is the value for the insurer or for the patient? Oh, the, the, the value is for the insurer, hands down. I mean, they, I've, I've learned a lot from your shows and I've looked into the CAFRs of, of some of these companies and it, it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> pretty remarkable. You know, it, it's, it's amazing. Little branding goes a long way, man. Yeah. Yeah. In the age of belief, anyhow, now that we're going on into the age of knowing, I'm guessing a lot of this stuff isn't going to fly for too much longer. 
You know, I, I hope so. And, and the one thing I, I really want to make sure everybody understands is that chances are, if you, if you have insurance, you are enrolled in one of these programs. You don't know it necessarily because it's not something that they explicitly say. Your doctor at some point may have sent you a letter. You're now part of the value-based program, or they may have a little sign in their office or whatever that says, we participate in value-based programs. You know, that's, that's that tacit agreement. If, if you don't say you don't want to be a part of it, you will be a part of it. So, which means that at this point, you are put into this group, this, this population for population management. So let's address that. What should people be aware they can opt out of? And so based on the conversation we just had, I'm guessing that if it was you personally, you might opt out of value-based anything, but are there things, can you opt out of any, or, okay, let me back up. Let me try to get my language together and quit jacking my jaw and try to be congruent with everything we've done. I'm assuming that everything goes on here as an offer. So if that is correct, can I opt out of these offers? And if so, how do you do it? And which ones would you choose to opt out of? (laughs) I know that's a lot. I can take that a piece at a time. So let me do that one at a time. Are all these things offers? And not all of them. So, so HIPAA, if we start with HIPAA, so HIPAA is kind of the gateway to allowing all of your information to be spread across 2 million plus entities. You can refuse to sign HIPAA, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to share your information. In my opinion, it, it means that if your information does get shared, if there is a breach, which we've all, I've certainly gotten notifications, oh, your medical record or something may have been released. If that does harm you in some way and you haven't signed HIPAA, it's my understanding that that may give you a leg to stand on if you're harmed in some way. I Um, imagine an affidavit would take care of that because I imagine they're not used to it, but we've done lots on affidavits. So regarding HIPAA, I don't know this is true, but I would imagine that if there is a way to use an affidavit, this would be one of them. But what would be the benefit of opting out of HIPAA from your point of view? Not getting your info shared? Is that basically it? Unfortunately, that opting out of HIPAA doesn't even prevent your information from being shared. Oftentimes, you know, if I refuse to sign HIPAA, but they'll push back and say, but you have to. And, and indeed, you don't. You know, if you continue to push and you can even bring up the, the HHS website and, and it specifically says on there, you don't have to sign. But really, all that does, if your information is shared inappropriately, I believe it gives you a leg to stand on if, if you needed to, I guess, sue. and. How, how would you ever know? I mean, just how, be how in the hell would you ever know? So, so you can actually file, um, every insurance company has a, a notice of disclosure. So you can, you know, go to your insurance and say, listen, I, I want a notice of all of my disclosures. Where, where have you sent my health information, which I've done personally. And again, I worked in the system. I know where my information went because I've, I've tracked it and I've seen my name show up on reports that just surprised me. But because they're within the bounds of HIPAA, they don't have to tell you about those. It's only the disclosures that happen outside of HIPAA, which in reality is, is virtually nothing. <laughs> All right. So let, let me reform where I was going. Are there things that it would be beneficial for a patient, not a fan of that word, but people know who I'm talking about, the customer, the patient, however you want to look at that perversion. Are there things that would be beneficial that they should opt out of, that they can opt out of? And by the way, I'm using some pretty messed up language because you can opt out any damn thing you want in this world. And it doesn't matter if a website, if you're a living man or a woman, you don't have to ask permission. Let's just leave it at that. But 
for all the living men and women out there that want to live a modern life in the systems, let's just fake like what I'm saying is sane. I assure you it is not, but I'll rephrase that one more time, Jessica. Are there things that they could, according to the policy of, of these systems, opt out of that would be of a benefit to opt out of? Yeah. So, so me personally, I, I opt out of health insurance altogether. Um, oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> there's a, there and there is a way for for folks that you know do want to go down that road. It's I understand that it's it's a risk that I'm taking, but there there's actually a, a movement kind of starting. There's a, a group called Wedge Health Freedom, and there you can search them online. Um, there's a, a group of physicians. Chances are there's probably one in your area that agrees to abide by your personal privacy preferences. They they won't you know share your information. They they do you know, value patient privacy. So if you find a physician um, within that program, you know, that's one route. But of course that doesn't, if there is an emergency or you need to go to the hospital. How are they getting paid though? If they're getting paid from an insurance company, how in the heck can you possibly be out of that loop? If the insurance company is doing the billing, they know what was done and they have your information. Right. So there's a certain set of the patient population that is specifically private pay. So it's a relationship between, it's, it's the good old days. It's the way it used to be. You have a relationship with a doctor, you decide on a, a fee for a particular service, and, and that's how it goes. Wow. Um, that's for, again, if, if you need a mammogram or you need something outside of that, it is possible. You can absolutely negotiate independently with, you don't have to go through insurance. It, it's going to take a bit of legwork, but it's, it's definitely doable. So I could actually go into a doctor's office and bump into Greg Brady to make a terrible pun. But Okay. Is there anything you want to get in before we wrap up hour one and come back and talk more freely? By the way, back viruses and vaccines are on this bullet list. We will get there. Um, anything, anything you want to add in, Jason? Uh, is there anything about the history that we need to know to get into hour one before we wrap? You can opt out and say no if you want. No, you know, (laughs) I like that. You you mentioned something and and it's always kind of burned my bridges, as my nanny would say, that the words that we use in healthcare are so disempowering. You know, it's a patient. What you get admitted to the hospital and doctors give you orders. And if you're not following the rules, you're considered non-compliant. And then and then you have to wait for a, a doctor on high to give you an order, you know, a discharge order to leave the hospital. It really pains me when I hear a lot of those words. And, and I, I want people to understand that you can, you can insist on being called something different and, and understand that those are just kind of the patriarchal leftovers. And, really? and Have you actually seen people say, don't call me a patient and I don't take orders from doctors? There, actually, there are. There's a, a very famous um, gentleman, they, they call him E-Patient Dave. Um, yeah. He, he, he he was not convinced with his doctor's diagnosis and he went down his own path and he got his own diagnosis and he challenged the system in every way, shape and form. And, and he's really kind of blazing trails when it comes to the, the area of patient advocacy. Is he alive? He is. Yeah. Yeah. We should get that dude on, man. He sounds like he'd be right in my ballpark. <laughs> oh, he's, he is fantastic. And I don't play organized ball, by the way, pick up games only. Yeah, you know, there, there's just one more thing before we go to just the members only. Um, there's a great book out there called Big Brother in the Exam Room. It's by um, Twyla Braze, B-R-A-S-E. She's a registered nurse as well, and, and she digs way deep into all of this HIPAA and EHR and the sharing of information. And there's a ton of resources out there um, if you want to go that route. Well, what was the first guy's name? E-Patient Dave, did you say? Yeah, it's E-Patient Dave. 
is he published or is he on a website or can you hook us up? Yeah, he does have his own website. You know, I haven't ever spoke to him personally, but when I kind of started down my my patient advocacy road, he he definitely inspired me in a lot of ways. Just the the initiative that he took um, in owning his own healthcare and his own diagnosis, and he he would not stop until you know someone actually listened to him because he knew what was going on in his own body. And you know that's that's what I would say, you know, to everyone: trust your body and and don't. The best thing you can have at the bedside is an advocate. Someone there taking notes. If there is someone in the exam room with you in the hospital and they're taking notes, that nurse, that doctor, they're going to pay attention because they know that they're on the record, so to speak. So know your your rights as a patient. Cell phones can do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, indeed. And you know what? I I had never thought of that, but absolutely. Say, you know, doctor, (laughs) you're being recorded at the moment. So, uh, yeah, but but definitely bring someone with you. Read your bill search the codes and things that are out there. I've actually challenged a number of, of bills of my own back when I did have insurance. Doctors were putting these codes on there saying they treated me for this, that, and the other, and it didn't happen. So I went back and said, hey, you know, you never even touched me. How could this be an involved physical exam if you didn't touch me? <laughs> you know, and, and just getting paid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the other thing I would say is if people are turning 65 and they're looking into Medicare versus Medicare Advantage, I would definitely suggest looking very critically at any of those Medicare Advantage programs. They they come with a nice zero dollar price tag often, but if you get sick, co-pays, they absolutely go through the roof. It's it's a really at least I I personally advise my parents to to go kind of the, the original Medicare route. But that's for everyone to decide. Just definitely look into Medicare Advantage. The stuff that goes on there, we can probably talk about an hour or two, but uh, it, it's pretty. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you two quick fire yes or no's. We can get into them later. Um, is AARP a good thing or a bad thing? Negative. Stay away from them. Okay. Uh, the other thing, well, we'll push it forward. I'm all about getting back to sanity, and believe me, Jason, we're gonna look up E Dash Dave, E Patient Dave, Dave, or whatever it is. We'll have to take a look at that. But when we come back, one of the big things we have is the pandemic, the monoculture, viruses, vaccines. I'm all about this advocacy. And I will close with this idea. We live in a world right now where marketing wins the day. And it's not just your value-based nonsense that people think they're getting the value when, in fact, they're giving the value away to someone else. It goes way beyond that because it is a mind takeover. And so when I hear people about E slash Dave or whatever his proper name is, that's where I want to be. You want to know why? Because I know for certain that everything that ever happened in this world started in a single mind. It was an idea. And when I hear that there's like these new doctors, you can come in and say, you're not sharing me. I'm not your patient. You don't give me orders and let's negotiate what I'm going to pay you here. And then I make a Greg Brady joke. There's a reason because that's going back towards sanity away from this nonsense we've been dealing with for so long. My point here is, is if single people start pressing back and saying, Hey man, I'm not a patient and don't give me orders. I'm not your slave. Um, if that starts to pick up, this all starts to crumble, but you got to realize one of the main underscore things we covered, man, those doctors are between a rock and a hard place. I was almost going to ask you, maybe we'll open up with our two with that. Does a doctor still get rich? Like in the old days, it was always the doctor who had the three Porsches and everything else. And I kind of feel like that's 
not the same situation it used to be, but we'll pick up an hour or two with that. Um, that does bring hour one of episode 288 to a close. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Join us on the other side at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-7-7-radio.com. And, of course, the pandemic will be on the other side as well. There it is, man. Cheers. Belief is the enemy of knowing.